everyone. My name is Marielle, and I am the founder of Travel Experiences Reimagined, the podcast for travel enthusiasts, wanderlust, and adventure seekers, craving to learn more about tours and excursions from all over the world through the eyes of a new tour guide or host each episode. Hi, everyone. New York City is a massive city filled with art, culture, and fashion, just to name a few. But there is also an immense amount of history in New York City. With the amount of history that New York City has to offer, it can be overwhelming to not just try to remember it all, but truly to take it all in. That's where my guest on today's episode comes in. Seth is the owner of Big Onion Tours, where he has owned and operated his tourism business for over 30 plus years to take people to diverse and interesting neighborhoods all throughout New York City to talk about the history in each one of those neighborhoods as a walking tour. Welcome, Seth. Did I miss anything? No, that was great. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming on. I, first of all, want to get into your background, but I do want to ask, I love the name Big Onion Tours. I know New York is known as the Big Apple, but I'd love to know where does Big Onion Tours come in? Like, how did that name even happen? It was a combination of a joke as well as some superficial 19th century research. We started Big Onion Walking Tours in 1991 when the city was an awfully dirty place. And we, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm serious, you brush off the dirt, the history of the city will peel away like the layers of an onion. If you want to go highfalutin, Ibsen's play The Doll's House talks about the layers of personality to get to know someone. Maybe you want to go see a Shrek movie. They're using the same reference in a Shrek movie. But it also comes from a 19th century term in a book by a German secret police officer on the Bowery who talks about the onions, the homeless, who are covered in dirt, have layer upon layer of stinky aromatic clothing, and at the core had some sort of bittersweet story. Like, I used to be a highfalutin blogger. I lost everything. Can you spare a nickel? Hmm. That's very interesting. I'm really glad you shared that because there's so much to uncover in New York, right? I feel it's always a big onion and you're peeling back the layers. But I want to go back to your background because you mentioned you started this in 1991. So tell me, I know that's where it all began, but what did you do prior to doing this business? Have you lived other places, other businesses you've tried, just to give the listeners a little bit more of an idea? You know, it's a great question, but the key is that Big Onion was started when I was a graduate student. And I was 23 years old. So not a lot of time creating other businesses before that. Had a ton of jobs and was very lucky to do a lot of traveling. My father was a research scientist and we got to live in Berkeley, California in the 70s, in Hawaii. I spent a year overseas in the Middle East. And then they went to a bunch of other places without me. But it really was coming from my academic interest in ethnic history and in the history of New York. My family comes from New York. Both of my parents were born in New York City. My mother's father loved the city and imparted that love of the city to me when I was a small child. And moving here in 1989 for graduate school, it felt like coming home. And two years later, with another graduate student, we started Big Onion Tours. Wow, that's a great story. And 
the fact that you've been able to live in so many different places really just opens your mind so much to different experiences, different people, different things to try stuff, right? Because you never know. But I love how you started this so young. And you did this, by the way, I just want to reiterate, with no social media, the internet was not a big thing back in the day. You really did this kind of you know, I don't want to say old school, but you really just started a business out of nothing and made it something. So I'd love to know what even inspired you to want to do this, right? There's so many other types of businesses. Why do a walking tour about history in New York City? Well, you know, thank you for the compliment. We jokingly say that we started in the days of payphones and pagers. <laughs> I believe <laughs> so, that. <laughs> there were no cell phones. There was no internet. I mean, honestly, it was an accident. I needed to pay rent. I needed to buy books. I had to live in New York City. And my colleague, Ed, had a family. And really, the difference between us was he was committed to becoming an academic professor. And we started this in 1991. Ed left in 1995. So he was with Big Onion for a brief time. And I was committed to living in New York at any cost. And it turned into a business. And, and I can say this looking backwards, that a lot of it has been about paying it forward, if you will. It helped me get through graduate school without a huge amount of debt. And I have, for the last 30 years, only hired graduate students or recent PhDs who need work to pay them a decent wage to present history in non-traditional ways. It has helped a tremendous number of people with their careers. And, and I can only say this looking backwards for three decades. This was not meant to be what it is. This was meant to be part-time gig that made some money that closed when we left New York and ended up somewhere else. But lo and behold, still here. Well, I think that's just a testament to you, right, and what you offer because a lot of times, and I'll say for anybody starting a side hustle or a side business, and especially New York, right? Anything to get you by. I know my dad grew up in Brooklyn and for him to pay to go to law school, he bartended, he worked odd jobs. It's very common in New York to do this if a lot of people don't know. But the fact that you were able to make kind of a part-time gig into your full-time career, that's amazing. And for that long too, because a lot of times with small businesses, they close up, right? They close shop after a couple of years, but you really stand the testament of time. So it really is something to be so proud of. And the fact that you hire graduates who have been in your position really just comes full circle. So I really love that. I want to get into your business, right? I saw your website. I love how it's that old school, rustic feel of New York. Like I can feel like the 1800s, early 1900s, looking at those photos and the before and after almost of seeing what New York used to be to what it is now. It just truly blows me away. So I'd love for you to go into just an overview because you offer a lot of tours. You offer tour categories, locations of tours. So just a bit of an overview of what you offer, how long your tours are, just to give the listeners a little bit more of an idea. We are currently rebuilding after two years of a COVID pandemic. So where we are right now in 2022 is that we're offering about 17 different tours. Our format is each tour runs about two hours. They're meant to be interactive and they're meant to take a neighborhood or a theme and really go in depth as we walk maybe between a mile and two miles in those two hours walking, stopping, talking, sharing historic images, sort of interpreting the contemporary 
scenes of what we're seeing and hearing and smelling and then moving on to the next stop. And if you look at our tours sort of connecting to each other, the idea is to build the stories of New York City neighborhood by neighborhood. You started the introduction by talking about how New York is such a big city. It is incredibly intimidating both to visitors and frankly residents. And the idea of being able to set a neighborhood and try and understand a little bit about that place makes it much more of an intimate and human experience. I love that. And I couldn't agree more. I think Manhattan, for anybody who is new to Manhattan, or even myself, I've worked in Manhattan, it's very intimidating. It's very overwhelming. All these big skyscrapers, people walking. There's just, New York really doesn't sleep. And I really want to reiterate that too, because New York is always moving and grooving in some capacity. And that can be really scary, especially for people who have never been to any type of city. New York is definitely a crazy one and, to your point, very intimidating. There's so many neighborhoods in Manhattan, right? Like, what neighborhoods do you focus on for history purposes, right? Like, do you go more to the Lower East Side, right? Because Lower East Side's history is so different versus, you know, the West Village, right? But that's also so different from Battery Park and Wall Street and Midtown. Like, how do you classify a neighborhood? And when you classify that neighborhood. How do you navigate that and share that story of that specific neighborhood? Well, first you have to mentally and then verbally with clients accept and explain that we're seeing a piece of a neighborhood, that we can't do everything, that we've taken, for example, you talk about the Lower East Side, a tenement. There are thousands of tenements in Manhattan. There are hundreds, if not thousands, in the Lower East Side alone. We're going to select one and talk about that tenement and the history of housing in a way that is a model for every other building around it. I think that that some people want or expect a walking tour to be an encyclopedia of numbers, dates, and facts. We're trying to tell a story. So by using examples, once you learn the history of a tenement, more people in Manhattan today who rent live in tenements than any other form of rental housing. doesn't matter what neighborhood you're in, but you're telling the story of urban housing as an example. But also, sometimes we are clearly defined by geography. The Lower East Side ends to the north at Houston Street, a major two-way thoroughfare that cuts across east to west, where the numbered streets begin above it, and that becomes the East Village. But we're also explaining how these names are artificial, how prior to 1963, the Lower East Side went all the way to 14th Street. And real estate interests refabricated this neighborhood as the East Village. And they literally said, and I'm paraphrasing, oh, it's not this immigrant rundown neighborhood. It's cool, hip, and bohemian like the village. So we can raise the rents. Wow. I learned something new and... That doesn't surprise me, to be quite honest with you. I think New York has a certain way of gentrifying a neighborhood, however they see it, right? Like New York real estate is crazy when you think about it. I've had friends live with three or four other people in one of these apartments, right? I suppose you call them tenements. And they're not the nicest, right, typically, but they still manage to live in there because there is that spark about New York, right? When you go out and you see these buildings and you learn so much, right? I'm sure the history of New York just goes so back. Like, what's the earliest, fondest historical facts or stories you can mention about Manhattan that people wouldn't know about? 
Well, you can go back to the indigenous people and talk about the Lenape and the other, what are called by some Native Americans who lived on the island prior to European arrival. But if we're going to talk about European arrival, we can look at the arrival of the Dutch in 1625 and the fact that New Amsterdam was created as a corporation and from the moment it was created had ties to the larger region of New Netherland. And any guess where else was governed by the head of the colony here in New Amsterdam? How much background have you done on this? I'm quizzing you now. Oh, me? Zero. (laughs) (laughs) You know, for me, I think history is so interesting, but I'm a history person where I like to, I'm a visual learner and I love to physically see something. I think for me, reading a history book wouldn't excite me as much as I would like to actually be there. Like seeing Manhattan, right? And walking through that. You know, it's just, it's more exciting. (laughs) Well, one of the things I like to tell people is that Peter Stuyvesant, the Dutch director general of the colony, when the colony was, goes from Dutch to English, was in charge of New Amsterdam, New Netherland, and Curaçao. That the ties to the Caribbean and the larger Atlantic world are part of this from the beginning. And as the Dutch come in 1625, we have African slavery within one year. And so by talking about the early history in all of the facets, the part that is incredible and the part that is hard to discuss, and quite often they're the same stories, we can really try to get beneath the surface of what makes New York, New York. I think one of my favorite stories to start with in in lower Manhattan in the financial district is that by the 1640s, so 25 years, 15 years after colonization, there were less than a thousand people living in the colony of New Amsterdam, and they spoke over a dozen languages. Wow. Yeah. I mean, think about that. So what, you know, we talk about how expensive New York is, but it's also a place of incredible opportunity for people, a variety of backgrounds and ethnicities and religions that many parts of America don't offer. And that diversity goes back to the very founding of this as a corporation. And if you're more worried about your religion, you're going to Massachusetts Bay or to Maryland or to somewhere else that's a religious colony. If you're interested in commerce or diversity or trade, you're coming to New Amsterdam. And that footprint is what we've built a city on. That is so interesting. And I've just, I've learned so much already. But back to your point for a second, what makes New York, New York? I know you mentioned the diversity and inclusivity, but- In terms of, I guess, history and just the architecture of New York and the feeling of New York, like, why do people keep coming back? Like, what, in your opinion, what is that spark about New York that is, makes it such a special place? I think that there is a tremendous tension. And I'll I'll answer the question in, in two different parts. One of the things that makes New York, New York is the fact that we are, Manhattan is an island surrounded by water and then other land. So as opposed to, say, Boston, which has much less land mass. We are limited, but we're not like Houston where we can just bleed into, you know, whatever counties next door. So we're going not just in terms of to the other boroughs of Brooklyn and Queens and the Bronx, Staten Island, but we're also building upwards. So part of it is just that frenetic energy of the buildings and the subways and the, just the masses of people give an energy to a place. And we're not in cars. When you're not in your own vehicle, you're forced to interact 
with other people in a way that many places that are vehicle-based don't have. So that's the first part. The second piece about the relationship of America to New York is that America has a love-hate relationship with New York. Yes. <laughs> and that's really important. This idea of, oh, it's a great place to visit, but I would never live there. I mean, we do a whole tour called Satan's Seat, New York during Prohibition. When America stopped drinking and New York, in many ways, just didn't care about Prohibition. And we also do a tour called Art, Sex, and Rock and Roll, New York and the Cultural Edge, where the tour is all about how has New York pushed America to the edges of cultural acceptance. So what did it mean when the original Madison Square Garden in the 1890s had a nude statue of Diana the Huntress during the very wound up tight waist Victorian era? And we go from there. So whether it be Diana the Huntress or punk rock, we're talking about a century of just sort of New York saying, we're New York, love us, hate us. We don't care. We're just doing our thing. That's very much the attitude of New York, I have to say. Not in a bad way. I think it's more, I'm going to do me and that's it. You can take it or leave it. And that's always kind of been the attitude. And again, I think some people can perceive that in different ways. And yes, it is a love-hate thing, right? You can hate to love it. You can love to hate it. Whatever it is, like New York is that way. It is what it is. So I love that you've mentioned that. I'd love to go into different neighborhoods. I know New York has so many neighborhoods. If somebody's going to New York for a couple days... And right, they're already overwhelmed as it is. Do you recommend any neighborhoods that are good to walk around that offer a lot of history, but they're also kind of easy to get around that you won't feel so overwhelmed or lost? Well, I feel that anyone coming to New York really should walk the Brooklyn Bridge. Million percent. I personally believe that if you call yourself a New Yorker and you've never walked the bridge, <laughs> you need to come up with another name for yourself. But I think that walking the Brooklyn Bridge and the signage is so good on the Brooklyn side. And now that the bike lane has been moved into the vehicle areas and the entire pedestrian walkway is for pedestrians, it's just fantastic. And take a walk down when you get off the bridge down to Fulton Landing. You've got the Brooklyn Ice Cream Factory. You've got Jacques Torres Chocolate Factory. You've got a couple other places. You've got Jane's Carousel. Just That's a wonderful, peaceful, great thing to do. And you get a nice view of literally four of the five boroughs. You can see four or five boroughs from there. I also think that I really enjoy walking Fifth Avenue. I'm mean, walking Fifth Avenue from Washington Square Park, where it begins, as far north as you feel like walking, is really great. You have wonderful architectural styles. You'll pass the Flatiron Building, Empire State Building. And any given point, you can just stop. So that's a really fun thing to do. And when it's the right weather, there's nothing better than riding the Staten Island Ferry. It's free. It goes across the Staten Island. You hop off. You hop on the ferry coming back. If you want to really be a New Yorker, maybe you put a you know tall boy in a paper bag and enjoy it during the hot. <laughs> you know, but but I'm serious. I I cannot tell you. When I was a poor broke graduate student, the number of times we rode the Staten Island Ferry for air conditioning. Air conditioning meaning the cool breeze off the water. It was crucial. So there's some things that are really, I think, fantastic because you said that are easy to get around. I love getting lost in Greenwich Village, So, but that's not easy. So I will take guests and say, all right, you guys pick the route. Let's just take a walk. I can get us out of the neighborhood, no problem. But let them have the experience of walking those 19th century streets that are contrary to the grid that Manhattan is known about. Yes, 
I love that you said that because a lot of times people mention about Paris how you should just walk aimlessly and be spontaneous and just enjoy the view. I can argue that about New York too to a point. Of course, there's grids and you can get an idea, but there's something to be said about getting a little lost, you know, in Greenwich Village or maybe Lower East Side or downtown because you can just wander and roam and explore all of New York City and what it has to offer. So I I love that you mentioned that too. Tell me your pet peeves and other misconceptions. <laughs> I'd love to know. <laughs> I have to bite my tongue when people say, and they've said it to me, oh, I love wandering through Paris in a gentle spring rain, but can we postpone our walking tour? It's raining. Uh. <laughs> and I'm like, wait a minute, wait a minute. <laughs> you know, it's a gentle spring rain, but somehow this rain is different than Parisian rain. Clearly, it's <laughs> it's very different. Haven't you heard? It's New York rain. <laughs> well, obviously, we don't have coffee shops here, so. Obviously, there's zero in Manhattan. You can't find a coffee place. What a bummer. But speaking of coffee and food, there are so many restaurants in New York, and I know so many restaurants have history behind them, right? And I'm going to say more of the quote-unquote famous ones. But do you have any restaurants or cafes that have a really unique story behind it that you think people should check out? There are so many choices. I mean, I challenge people to eat something they've never had before or to at least break their comfort zone and and not eat what they normally eat. So, for example, when I travel, and unless I'm in Italy, I'm not looking for an Italian restaurant. We have brilliant Italian restaurants in New York. And it's quite often if same thing with sushi. I'm not going to go to X American city, unless it's on the West Coast, and eat sushi, we have pretty darn good sushi here. But we are the United Nations of food. I mean, historically, there are a number of fantastic restaurants, just a matter of what time period you want. I love Keen's Steakhouse. Have you ever seen Keen's? I think they're on, what, the, the East 30s? I thought they were on 35th or 36th and 6th, because I've passed by it before. It looks like a nothing place, but then you go inside and it's this incredible steakhouse, right? It's an incredible steakhouse. The ceilings are lined with these Dutch clay pipes. The pictures of the famous people that have dined there. The Teddy Roosevelt Room. I mean, it's just a piece of history. And let's be honest, it's just an old school steakhouse. And I love it for the history. I also like, because it has personal, I don't know, for me, Odeon down in Tribeca. I think I've been there. That's like an old school diner, right? Old school French a uh, diner. It's I would call it a brasserie. And but it's one of the first places that I went to in the late eighties when I had a dinner out. I really love across the street or down the block from them Walkers, the old burger joint in an old nineteenth century tavern or pub. But if you really want to go to history, Chumley's in the West Village, an old Prohibition era speakeasy, or the White Horse Tavern, which has the Dylan Thomas room. There are all of these great little hole-in-the-wall places that you can find and go to or or just even now reopened on Fulton Street in downtown Brooklyn, uh, Gage and Toner. Gage and Toner has been restored back to its incredible glory with the gas lamps inside and the tables. And there's a ceremony to do every night of the lighting of the gas lamps. It's an incredible building. And we used to go to Gage and Toner when we, before it closed, and then it became a Wendy's. And then it became something else. And then it was empty for a while. And now people have invested a tremendous amount of money to bring it back to the way it was, I would say, probably around 1890. Wow. 
That's a lot of dedication to bring back a restaurant, right? After it's been, there's so many iterations of different restaurants to invest that money to bring it back to what it used to be. That's a challenge, you know, and especially in New York, I'm sure that's not easy, but that's really exciting. I think people really enjoy places with a story, right? I went to one place that was a speakeasy. I think it's near St. Mark's Place in the East Village. It's called Criff Dog. I don't know if you've heard of this place, but so you have the caveat of this place is at three o'clock, you have to call them. And chances are you'll get a busy line about 30 times, but you have to keep calling. You can get through to somebody and you can make a reservation for that evening only. And so when you go there, you walk in and it's essentially like a hot dog place. But on the side, there's an old phone booth. So you ring, you know, ring, ring, ring. And it's the hostess on the other side. And you go to this other side and it's this whole bar that was from old prohibition times. And, you know, it's that idea of like hiding alcohol, right? And it's that speakeasy that people love. So I always love places like that too. I think they're just really fun and exciting. So I love that you've mentioned some of those too. I'm just going to say this where the cynic in me comes out. Sure. Because if someone is going to say to me, my bar is a hidden bar from prohibition, I'm going to want them to prove it. Ah, and how do you prove that, right? Like what's the proof of that? Do you have old pictures? Do you have old records framed on the wall in terms of, you know, financial records? Do you have on display old bottles of hooch from 1920 to 1933? Because part of the thing about New York is that there are lots of people out there that are really good at selling the Brooklyn Bridge. So there are a lot of places that have got spectacular stories that are just compelling and brilliant and wonderful. And I'm not saying this place isn't one of them, but there are also a lot of places that are just complete bunk. I can see that. I think from a sales perspective of any type of business, right, of course you want to sell yourself in the best way possible and make yourself cool and hip and fun and whatever other terms you want. So sure, if they say it's old prohibition times, myself, maybe I'm like, oh, that's cool, right? But for someone like you looking at it from a historical background, you really want to know, right? Because it's that proof, it's that validation that you're not just saying it, you actually are it. So I do think that's really important. So I love that. And it also bleeds into my other passion about history. And I'm a rum historian. So I do a lot of work in the history of Caribbean rum, particularly rum from Barbados. So a lot of it is deciphering the truth in a whole bunch of, use the word already, bunk. So we're, we're bringing together my love of historic alcohol and cocktails and beverages with my love of history of New York at a lot of these places that are like, we've been here forever. I'm like, really? The building was built 14 years ago. How were you here before the building was built? <laughs> so your goal is to really debunk and demyth a lot of things. Because to your point, I think in New York, so many things come and go and people will do anything to market and advertise. Because New York, right, it's so competitive. There are so many restaurants. There are so many cafes that it can be really hard to try to stand out in the crowd. So I think people will say and do whatever they need to do to get the business. But to your point, if there's no proof... It's very hard to validate that. And so that's great that there are people out there like you kind of debunking these myths and debunking these validations to really see that they exist. So I love that. And I have a couple more questions before we kind of slowly-ish wrap up. I have to ask, you know, I'm not a quote-unquote full New Yorker. I've lived outside of New York my whole life. But 
being in New York, two big foods, pizza and bagels, right? Staples, people know them in New York, and it's very hard to replicate, right? If you're going to name your favorite bagel place or your favorite pizza place, I got to know which ones they are. Well, those are two very, very controversial topics. Oh, I know they are. (laughs) So my favorite bagel place is Terrace Bagel on Proxim Park West in Windsor Terrace, Brooklyn. They're my favorite bagel place. Pizza is a little bit more complicated because pizza is often about like the mood. Do you want to go for an old school slice or just a simple pie at John's? for Arturo's. My wife and I, we had our first date at Arturo's Pizza on Houston Street many years ago. So that place is always sort of dear to me. But is it the best pizza? That's for someone else to decide. Or do I want to go the other direction and have, I recently had a pizza that was a duck prosciutto pizza with duck egg and cheese that was out of this world. But I don't know if I'd call it pizza, even though it looked like one. So I'm going to sort of defer on the pizza one, but I'm very adamant on my bagels. Well, I think that's very fair. And yes, there's nothing like a New York bagel. I mean, I love them. I think I could, if I could eat a bagel every day and not feel like a whale, I literally would eat a bagel every day. It's just part of, you know, I'm Jewish. So it's like part of my DNA. <laughs> oh, me, yep. Me too. Ah, Lachayim. And believe me, Lachayim, we have to wait till after five o'clock, but you better believe it. It's Saturday. But, you know, I will say that one of my newest favorite discoveries and places that is neither pizza nor bagel, is actually a place in the meatpacking district called Best Burger, which has these fantastic thin burgers on these incredible rolls and some of the best cocktails I've had in a very long time. It's right in the heart of the meatpacking district in the shadow of the Whitney Museum. And it's just really outstanding for, I don't want to call it a hole in the wall, but it's a little place that is absolutely unbelievable. So for me, I'm moving into like, who makes a really good burger? Because I think burgers are really key right now. Sort of like good comfort food. That sounds amazing. I love hole-in-the-wall places. I think some people may look at those places and think, ugh, like I I wouldn't eat there, right? It's not posh enough. It's not nice enough. But there's something to be said about going to a more hole-in-the-wall place, a place that's a gem that has amazing food, right? At the end of the day, I just want really good food and good service and to know that it's relatively clean. So if you have all that, it doesn't really matter. But I'd love to ask you, I'd love for you to talk about three to five, I'm going to say interesting facts that surprise people when you tell them, because a lot of times people may think they know New York, right? Especially New Yorkers, they think they know New York, but you tell them something and it really surprises them, right? It makes them think, hmm, I actually didn't know that. That's so fascinating. That's a great question. I think that the first is the overarching point which is it's perfectly acceptable to be a tourist in your own city. That there's absolutely nothing wrong with looking up. Unless, of course, you climb out of the subway and you choose to stop right at the top of the stairs and block the (laughs) stairs with people behind you. But the number of times that people never notice anything because they're so busy looking at the sidewalk, not making eye contact, or God forbid, staring at their phones, just look up once in a while. So that's the first. One thing that a lot of people find shocking is that The grid that we've been talking about, 1811, the commissioner's plan that lays out avenues and blocks and streets, well, it's not the only grid. There is a separate grid of rectangular streets in Tribeca, Soho, and the Far West Village that is aligned with the Hudson River and Greenwich 
and the neighboring streets that go north-south there. So that's how you end up with streets like West 10th Street crossing West 4th Street. The intersection of West 10th and West 4th is the collision of the colonial grid on the west side and the 1811 grid. And once you explain to people that the far west side in lower Manhattan is a grid, it suddenly makes more sense. So that's number two. Number three would be that just because you see a skyscraper as it is doesn't mean that that's what it was designed to be. And really, skyscrapers are also best seen from a distance. One of the reasons we don't lead any tours in Midtown is that you can't see the buildings when you're standing directly underneath them because of the way, thanks to zoning laws of 1916, they rise up, they step in with a terrace and then rise up again. You can't see those details. So you have to see them from a distance. But I was recently researching and doing a little social media about a building called 20 Exchange Place, which is this gorgeous early 1930s skyscraper on a trapezoidal piece of land that was supposed to be the tallest building in the world until they downscaled the building. So quite often our buildings that look a little truncated on top or look like they don't really fit, it's because someone had a brilliant, outstanding, outrageous plan and it never got finished. Those are all really valid and good points. I do love your skyscraper one. Well, one, paying attention, right? I think that's important. But also with skyscrapers, it's always nice to see them from a distance, right? I have lived in Jersey for pretty much most of my life. And I used to go to Liberty State Park. And in Liberty State Park, you can see Ellis Island and the Statue of Liberty, but you can see all of downtown. And It's just a beautiful view to look at it from that perspective. And same with Brooklyn, right? I've walked the Brooklyn Bridge. I've gone through the promenade. And I've seen Manhattan from that perspective. And both are beautiful, right? I don't discriminate. I love both views. I think when you have the view of looking at it from a distance in general, I always think the city is pretty when you look at it from the outside. But when you're in it, it's very hard to look at all these skyscrapers and appreciate it because you're not looking at it away. So I really love that you mentioned that because I think that it's really important. And I have two other questions. And one of them is, so in terms of misconceptions about New York, right, a lot of times New Yorkers get, well, you know, New Yorkers are rude and New Yorkers are this and New Yorkers are that. What do you say to people who have any type of misconception and what do you think are some of the misconceptions that you would like to debunk? Well, one is that New Yorkers are not rude. New Yorkers live in a fast-moving, high-stress pressure cooker where we have tremendous demands on our time, and we're more impatient than rude. And I think there's really a big difference. I am not rude about the person online in front of me at, say, the deli counter at my local store who is ordering things one piece at a time. The person behind the counter is able to hold more than one thought in their mind at once. Tell them what you want. They'll bring you everything. I'm impatient, if that makes sense. Sure. I don't think New Yorkers are rude either. I just think that's a misconception a lot of people have. I think, look, for me too, I've helped people where they've been lost trying to get to a subway and I direct them where to go, right? But to your point, I'm rushing to get a train. (laughs) I'm rushing to get home. So I think a lot of times, I think we live, especially New York, it's so fast paced, you blink and all of a sudden the day is gone. It's just, it's wild how that happens, but it moves so quick, you almost forget to embrace the moment sometimes. And I think, 
in New York. I hope people do that a little bit more is to just embrace New York and like love New York and not feel so rushed or so impatient about things because it happens, right? But I think New York just has that way about it in a very strange way. But that's just how New York is. It's hard to explain that. Yes. But I also think that unlike much of the country, which is passive aggressive, we're aggressive aggressive. (laughs) We tell it like it is. Yeah. We don't say, oh, bless your heart, which is like a backhanded compliment and kind of an insult at the same time. We disagree with you right out. It's true. It's true. I mean, you're pre- I'm outside of New York, you're preaching to the choir with that one because I think, you know, it's interesting. I've traveled to different places and I've gone down south. And to your point, they do say like, bless her heart or bless her. And if you don't know what that is, you're just going to think, oh, you know, maybe she was kind of nice. I'm not really sure. But you'll know if a New Yorker likes you or doesn't like you very, very quickly. I don't think there's like even a question mark. <laughs> A hundred percent. I Absolutely. And I think that's really part of the key is that we live in a small space. We each kind of take up the small amount of turf in a crowded city. So just we let things, the key is that we let things go and we let things by, but it's sort of the classic freedom of speech freedom of rights, you know, whatever you want to call it, where I will do what I need to do and I will not insult you and I will not hurt you or harm you. But I 100% expect the same from the other person. 100%. 1000%. I think that's just so well said. And yeah, I don't, I think New Yorkers are just so in their own world, but they don't want to be rude or disrespectful. It's more, if I respect you, you respect me. And like, that's the way it needs to go. Otherwise, if you don't respect me, I'm not going to respect you. And that's just, that's how it should be to a certain level, right? Like you don't want to be rude, but you also want to be respectful at the same time. Yes. And especially now, as we're coming out of a pandemic, And we are in a very delicate, social, political country. We don't have a lot of patience for the assumption that because someone is different than me, they're any less smart, skilled, or articulate. And I think the New Yorkers are very good about looking beyond the surface and looking for those more important characteristics of just humanity than the appearance of someone. I agree. And I only hope that is more of a ripple effect for many years to come in different parts of this country and the world too. I think more and more people need to be like New York in the sense of diversity, in the sense of culture and what you've mentioned earlier. Because I know for me, like I, if you're a jerk, you're a jerk, right? Period. Like I don't, I think we just need to all respect each other more and all be a bit more understanding and listening. I think that will really help right? We all can't move the needle and make things disappear. But if we can all understand and respect each other every single day, I just think we'll all move to a better place in that sense. But I do think New York, to your point, does a really good job of that. Yeah, I'll give you an example. We do a a food tour called the multi-ethnic eating tour, where we combine the history and ethnic shops and markets of the diverse Lower East Side. And one of our vendors is a two-generation business in the heart of an ethnic neighborhood where the founding generation, Phil, worked so hard seven days a week for his daughter to go to Barnard. And she went to Barnard College and she graduated and she chose to come back and run the family business. 
and have seen people not treat her with the respect she deserves as a business owner who also has a college degree and is now saving the money to put her children through college because she's working in a small family business in an ethnic community. It's those communities going all the way back to the beginning of our conversation. It's those communities that are the lifeblood of our city. It's the people that live and work in the city, not necessarily wearing a jacket and tie or you know, work clothes in terms of, you know, office attire every day is the people that are keeping the city running. And those are the folks that have suffered tremendously in the last two years. No foot traffic, no fewer businesses, no tourists that I'm really looking forward to seeing them take advantage of every opportunity they've got as we frankly reopen. That's a powerful message. And that's a powerful story. I Totally agree with you on that. I think it's those businesses that make New York special, right? When you when I think of New York, right, I think of Chinatown, I think of Little Italy, I think of Koreatown, I think of the little Russian areas, I think of Brighton Beach, right, with all the Russian areas. I think of certain parts of Brooklyn with all the Jewish areas. I think of that and I think, well, that's what makes New York so special. It's all these different ethnic cultures and diversity of people that make New York special. And to your point, it's those small businesses that make New York special. It's not the Starbucks. (laughs) It's not the Chipotle. It's not the Forever 21 or the Targets. It's the little mom and pop places, right? That is what makes New York, New York. And I only hope and pray that New York continues to stay that way with these small businesses being there and eventually people traveling like they have pre-pandemic, probably even more. I think people want to travel and experience what the world has to offer. And I think New York is one of those places that is a fantastic city to visit. I think it's probably better spring and fall, in my opinion. But I also think if you want to visit New York any time of the year, right, you can. And it's always open and welcome for anybody to visit and check out. So one other question before we kind of really wrap up here, but I love to ask this at the end of every episode, is how do you want people to feel when they do one of your tours, right, or experiences? I always love to hear this because everybody has their own opinion, and I'm just always so intrigued and sometimes surprised. It's a great question, and I think that we want everyone on a Big Onion tour to come away having felt like they've learned something or have a different understanding of a preconceived notion. We have a tremendously loyal local base. On any given tour, 40% of the people on a tour live in New York City. And we also have an incredible 70% return rate. So 70% of the people that take a Big Onion tour come back for another one, which I am really proud of, both of those numbers. And if you can come away from a tour and feel like you learned something, that it hasn't just been rote memorization and regurgitation, that we have entertained your questions, we've given you answers, or of equal importance have said, I don't know when we don't know the answer to the question, then I think we've done a good job. So maybe it's not just you've come away learning something, but you've come away feeling like we are being authentic. That's a great word. I love authentic. I love real. I love honest. I love local. You've said so many amazing things in that. And I think that, again, back to what I've said earlier, it's a true testament to you and your company 
to be around for so long and to have repeat business. That is probably the dream of many tour guides. And so I just wish you so much continued success and for another 30 to 50 more years. But I always hate to wrap these up. (laughs) (laughs) I do. I do. I learned so much because Seth, you've been amazing. Again, I want to reiterate that you're just so knowledgeable. You have so much wisdom. You know so much about New York, right? You probably know more about New York than most New Yorkers who've lived there for so many years because you just engrossed yourself in learning about all of this, which is amazing. And I love that you also hire local graduates as well who are PhDs or masters or whatever in history. I think that just is such a beautiful way to share that with other people and to give people opportunities. But I'd love for you to shamelessly plug away all your social media your website and most importantly how can people book one of your fabulous tours well thank you i just want to say that i was laughing at the idea of doing this for the 30 to 50 years so just to clear that one up real quick (laughs) (laughs) you never know you never know so we are big onion walking tours our website is bigonion.com our instagram is at Big Onion Tours. My name is Seth Camel. The last name is spelled K-A-M-I-L. So I've got LinkedIn and all those other fun things. Uh, really, everything is on our website. We set our public tour calendar about five to seven weeks in advance. So you'll be able to see advanced schedule of the public tours. People can book online securely, sign up. We do limit the number of people. And we also do private outings whenever people want to come that we're able to accommodate. So it's a combination of the public tours, the private tours, and for the last few years and moving forward, we are doing virtual tours where through Zoom, you can sit wherever you're sitting and enjoy a visual tour of New York using historic and contemporary images that are just as interactive as our in-person walks. That's amazing. And I want to ask one more question too, actually. How many people do a lot for each of your tours? We a lot between 20 and 25 based on the tour that we're leading. We in the last two years have rarely gotten anywhere close to those numbers. And I, you know, I, I'm going to be honest, in case you have listeners who are familiar with us, pre-pandemic, we were doing public tours seven days a week, every day of the year, except for Thanksgiving. We would do multiple tours a day on weekends And during the spring and summer months, we would do tours, two to four tours every day, seven days a week. We, when I say we're rebuilding, we're now doing one public tour three days a week. So it is a slow crawl back to where we were. But for anyone who's feeling pessimistic, I would like to remind them that after the World Trade Center came down, it was very quickly said that Lower Manhattan is dead and will never recover. So New York isn't going anywhere We are not going anywhere. This is just unforeseen historic moments that we will, like the rest of the city, come back from. I think New York is an evolution, right? I think about this because New York has gone through so many iterations, right? From what you know in history, New York was so different from 1900 to 2000. New York is so different from 2000 to 2022. New York will be different from 2022 to 2050, right? It's not that it's dead. It's an evolution. And I think people need to think about New York in that way because it's not dead. It's just going to evolutionize into something else. And who knows what that is, right? I'm not a mind reader, but it will evolutionize into something bigger and better than we could have ever imagined, I'm sure. You know, I'll leave you with one related thought. In the 19th century, when John Jacob Astor 
one of the wealthiest of Americans lay in his deathbed. Supposedly, he said, and I, I paraphrase, if I knew then what I know now, I would have bought all of it. And all of it was Manhattan. So yeah, we don't know. You're 100% right. And on his deathbed, one of the greatest financial minds in the 19th century who owned huge tracts of land, he couldn't have guessed what would have happened. No one could. <laughs> I don't think anyone could guess. If we all could guess, we'd all be winners of the lottery, right? So, but awesome. Again, thank you so much, Seth, for coming on. It's been absolutely wonderful to have you. Thank you for the time. And I really appreciate all your questions. Thank you so much for tuning into Travel Experiences Reimagined podcast. Click the subscribe button to learn about a new tour guide or host each week, where you'll find out more about how they got started, talking in detail about their experience, and any fun facts or tips that they'd like to share. Do you have an experience that you would like others to learn about, whether it is a tour, excursion, adventure, or experience? Fill out our form online, on our website, at www travelexperiencesreimagined.com for a chance to share your story and experience so others can learn more about what you have to offer.